0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and find your way to the Gospel of John. For the last several weeks we have been considering what is commonly called the second coming of Christ and in passing we have noted that the last times, the end times, the end of the age, whatever term you might use to describe those times leading up to the second coming of Christ are the things which get the lion's share of interest and play when it comes to the doctrine of last things. However, There are other aspects, and all of us will have an end time in our personal lives. And Jesus, although he does not record the, through John, the Revelator, he does not record the discourse that Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, he does refer to his second coming In John chapter 14. In 1996. uh, An explorer. Of the ocean floor. By the name of George Tulloch. Went down. At the site. Of the sinking of the Titanic. Which had occurred in 1912. He was able to explore. The bottom of the sea. Where that great. Titanic sat. He and his helpers brought back things that were rather commonplace, eyeglasses and also jewelry and dishware. And as he was looking there, he noted that a piece of the hull had separated from the main body of the ship. He went and looked at it. He sized it up and decided that he would come back and bring the necessary equipment to lift it off the shore of I mean, excuse me, the floor of the Atlantic Ocean and take it back with him. He made the preparations, went down in his submarine, and he used robotics in order to take hold of it and s- secure it with ropes and chains. And then when he got back to the surface, there was the order to begin to bring it up. And it came up slowly, as you would imagine. Over two tons in weight, coming, coming, coming. And by the time it reached the surface of the sea, a big storm had come crashing down upon that area. And the storm was so fierce that it broke the ropes. And sure enough, that hull, which had sunk some 84 years before, sunk for the second time. Needless to say, it was discouraging to Mr. Tulloch. But not to be daunted, he found an idea that he wanted to pursue. He had a man on board the ship to engrave a simple statement. I will come back. And then signed George Tullock. Indeed, they came down to the bottom. They put this inscription, attached it to the hull, and went back up. And the result was that two years later, he did make good on his promise. He said he was coming back, and he came back. This is the word of a sea explorer. A man who was finite, in fact, I was interested to discover that only a few years later, after he made this great discovery and brought back that hull of the ship, was out of this world himself. He left it. But let's look at this passage in John 14, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Bible, and then we're going to come back and look at it in detail. Jesus says this, John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Some of your translations translate those words this way. I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. These men who were the closest of Jesus' associates, for three years or so, they had hung out with Jesus. And they had listened to him teach. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle, They had been party to what God was doing in the person and through the person of Jesus Christ. And they were excited. And all of a sudden, their anticipation of being with Christ when his kingdom would be established on earth, the bubble was burst when Jesus said, I'm leaving you. Can you imagine the frustration, the disappointment? And the scripture says that Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. The word translated trouble means let not your heart be shattered. Let not your heart be shaken. Let not your heart be distraught. Who could blame them to find their hearts in such a shape? But literally he says stop letting your heart be troubled in this way. And he gives the reason it does not have to be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you know much about the New Testament, you probably know that the word believe here, and it's the word which is used throughout the New Testament. The noun form has the same suggestion, the same idea behind it. This is not a belief that is something that is only in the mind. Please understand the Bible teaches us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And it's important that we understand certain doctrines about the person of Jesus Christ in order that we might be able to be sure of eternal life. We need to know that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Before he became a human being, he was from eternity past God. We know that. We'll look at that if I remember a little later in our discussion of this passage of Scripture. Also, we need to understand that he lived a sinless life. It was required that a perfect person die in our place in order that we might be able to have forgiveness of our sin and go to be with God when this world ends. He also went to the cross to secure our salvation. It was no lark for Jesus. It was hellish for him. In fact, there is strong suggestion that he experienced all the horrors of hell because the Bible teaches us that God the Father himself, listen carefully, God the Father himself made Jesus his only begotten son to literally become the embodiment, the personification of sin in order that God the Father could legitimize bringing us to him. It had to happen that there had to be that perfect sacrifice, and the person who punished Jesus was none other than God the Father himself. We need to understand that and believe what the scripture says about it. Then the resurrection. If you have studied the book of Acts rather carefully, what you know is that the main emphasis of all the preachings and teaching I was surprised when I finally discovered this several years ago when I was preparing and teaching through the book of Acts. I was surprised that the main idea is not crucifixion, although it was part of all those great messages that were preached by people like Paul and Peter and all the others who preached and taught the word of God in the book of Acts. But I found out that the resurrection was the central theme. We have to believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Amen? That's what the scripture says. You can believe all those things I've mentioned so far. The incarnation, you can believe that. You can believe the sinless. Life of Christ lived out in daily life just like we do, being tempted in every way as we have been, yet without sin. We can believe certainly about the cross and when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of dereliction as they say it. And the idea of that is that he did become the flashpoint for the wrath of God in order that he might save us and that he's alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed indeed is what the scriptures say. And he ascended into heaven. But we can believe all that and still not have biblical belief. The word which is translated believe here is best understood, I think, when we look at John 1.12 where the Bible says about Jesus, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Everybody in this world enters this world not as a child of God, but according to the Bible. This is not flattering at all, but it's reality. and We have to face the reality. In the 8th chapter of John, the scripture says, we are children of the devil. Not flattering, is it? But it's true. And what we know is, but as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believing is receiving. And the word which is used, translated believe, and its associated word in the noun faith or belief, is the word which suggests moving toward an object or a person and putting our trust in that object. This word was used, for instance, and this really captures the idea of what genuine faith is. Uh, Someone having a guest arrive at his or her home and at the arrival what the person who is hosting does gladly embraces the person who comes and moves toward that person and in so doing says, I believe in you. I trust you. This is what it means To really believe in Christ. To entrust ourselves, lock, stock, and barrel to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is real belief. You believe in God, believe also in me is what Jesus says. Because I am the bodily expression of the invisible God. So they were upset. And we can understand why. I wonder if you're here today and you are upset about something in your life. And you're having a hard time dealing with it. What you need to understand, we can do exactly what God says in his word and we should. We read from the 56th chapter of Psalms to kick off our time of worship. And... David is the writer of that psalm on the human side. And what does David say? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. What can mortal man do to me? And the answer is very clear. Absolutely nothing. And we could add Satan to that. What can Satan do to you if you are a child of God? He cannot harm you. He cannot take you away from the Father. He cannot let His will be done in your life unless God permits it to happen in your life. So the good news is we put our trust in the Lord. In the Psalm right before, the 56th, obvious it's the 55th Psalm. In this 22nd verse, this is what David writes. Cast your burden on Him, speaking of God, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. We're not righteous in ourselves. But we have become righteous in the Lord. God made Christ, as I mentioned, to be sent on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Wonderful, isn't it? Death. Death. That is a formidable foe, isn't it? In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses it. The writer of Hebrews addresses it in the second chapter of Hebrews. Paul says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting to know that we have the victory? In that same book of 1 Corinthians, this is largely overlooked. I would doubt that many of you really know what that last couple, of three verses of 1 Corinthians 3 says, not because you're ignorant, because you really haven't seen it as you should see it or spent time reading it. And it's sometimes certain things in the Bible, for me, are almost blanked out because what comes before or comes after or before and after is so penetrating and so exciting, I don't catch some of the rest of it. But it says this in First Corinthians 3, 21, I believe is the exact reference. The Word of God says this, everything belongs to you. Talking about us who know Christ. When we become Christ's, we inherit everything that is his, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, among other things, he lists his name, Paul and Cephas, which was Peter's Hebrew name, Paul Cephas, then he mentions Apollo, and then he mentions life. Life is ours, but remarkably, he says, and death belongs to us. We do not be, belong in a position any longer to be dominated by the fear of death because Christ has overcome death. And part and parcel of trusting in Him is that we have eternal life. Upset, yes. But we can give our upset feelings to the Lord And believe what he says in his word. Trust in him. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I won't be bothered by other things. But there are wonderful things. Uplifting things. In the last five verses of this text. That are ours. As followers of Jesus. Let's look at them in verse. Chapter 2. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so. I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. There are two words that are typically used in the New Testament, translated by our English word, house. The most frequent of those words is the word which means not just the dwelling, but the contents of the dwelling, and also the estate, if you will. That's not the word which Jesus chooses here. He uses the word which means, uh, in effect, home. We have a saying in our way of speaking in English, A house is not a home. It's true, isn't it? There's got to be more to it. And in this case, it's the Father's house that Jesus is working for us to create a place for us. He is telling these men, and by way of them, He is telling us this morning, That He has prepared a place for us if we trust Him, if we believe in Him, if we have faith in Him, we give Him our lives. I go to prepare a place for you. Here's another wonderful thing about that place. He's preparing a place for me and for you that's part of the house of God, the Father's house. And I thought about this. I hadn't even thought about this until I was worshiping just a moment ago. And it came to my attention that nobody will have lived in the place that is prepared for me. Here's why. Because nobody dies in heaven. Isn't it amazing that the Lord has prepared a specific place with your name on it in heaven? This is what the scripture is teaching. And that in itself should be encouraging to you and help you to rise above the circumstances of your life when you feel crushed by them. Cast your burden on the Lord, Psalm 55, 22 says. And actually the word burden is cast, this is what it literally says in the Hebrew, cast what He has given you upon the Lord and He will sustain you. And the scripture goes on to say that He will never let the righteous be shaken. These men were in a state of shakenness, if there is even such a word. And their hearts were deeply disturbed. But he says, calm down, men, calm down. I've gone to prepare a place for you. When I leave you shortly, understand I've gone to prepare a place for you. And the many dwelling places, the idea there... Begs for an explanation more complete than just simply a dwelling place. This word was used outside the New Testament, contemporary to the New Testament, to describe stations on a journey. Many of you have taken car trips. Some of you have taken a trip that's taken you all the way across the country, right? And what did you have to do? Unless you were an iron man, you didn't drive all the way from here to the east coast The West Coast is much more accessible. We can make that in a day. But let's say you're going to Maine, you're going to take several trips, and if you're on a sightseeing trip, you're going to stay a while at different places. The idea this word conveyed in the minds of these men included the idea that heaven is a place with various stop-offs. Once you're there, you're in heaven. But the idea would be that We're going to continue to make progress in our knowledge of God. There will be no way that you and I can grasp everything there is about God, even in eternity, because He's infinite. He still will be different than we. Christ will still indwell us by the Spirit, but we won't know everything. But the good news is, and I like to learn, and you probably do too, you wouldn't be here today, you want to continue to grow. That's good news, isn't it? In my Father's house are many stopping places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. Let's look at verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Christ is coming back. Either at the second coming of him or when you die physically, if you die before Jesus comes back. And He's going to receive you to himself. Can you imagine? The first face you will see when you pass away is going to be the face of Jesus. He's coming for you. And he says, and where I am, there you may be also. We would easily skip over this if it were not for a careful look at two words In this text, in the English, I am. Whenever we encounter Jesus in the scriptures, it seems like this one is always showing interest in people. And he does it many times through physical touch. He touches lepers, rendering himself, according to the prevailing viewpoint of the day, unclean. But isn't that what Jesus always does when He touches us? We're sinners. And Christ comes and He touches us. And He heals us spiritually. Not just physically. He heals us spiritually. Jesus is reaching out, touching lepers. And He touches prostitutes, not in a sensual way, but in a spiritual way, a wholesome way. To validate them as being people, not something to be used To make a living for other men or for the prostitute herself in that situation. He's touching also people who are sick. He lays his hands on them. I've already mentioned the lepers. But he lays his hands on them beautifully. And this would also indicate when we see him with his hands outstretched touching people. We know he was always blessing people, wasn't he? Blessing children. We just read recently in our reading through the New Testament, the book of Matthew. He said, bring that little child here. And he didn't say, don't let her sit on my lap. She might soil my garment. He didn't say that. He took her close. He held babies and he touched them and he blessed them. He didn't limit His blessing to infants or children, although He had a heart for them because He knew unless we become like little children, not ignorant, not lacking insight, but little children in the sense that we're trusting and we're also humble, we will not enter the kingdom of God. He reaches out in blessing people in that way, touching them. He also reaches out in saving people by touching them. The most notable incident of this, I think at least is when the apostles were in the boat in the middle of the night. There was this ferocious storm and as they looked out on the surface of the sea, they thought they were seeing a ghost. There was a lot of folklore about ghosts walking on the Sea of Galilee. The sea was inhabited according to some way of thinking, with a lot of ghosts. And they said, it's a ghost. Add that to our list of things that we should be afraid of, they were saying. And then all of a sudden, one of the apostles says, no, I think it's the Lord. And Peter looks and he says, Lord, is it you? And he said, it is I, do not be afraid. And then what does he tell Peter? When Peter says, Master, may I come to you? Come right ahead, Peter. He steps out over the boat, starts making his way toward the Lord. And all of a sudden, he takes his eyes off of the Lord because the wind and the waves were still in an uproar. And when he did, the moment he took his eyes off Jesus and put them on the surface of the sea, boom, he began to fall. Bible, Boom. We don't know how much he weighed. Men were typically less big in that day than they are today. Let's just say conservatively he weighed 140 pounds. Let's say he was about five foot seven. How long do you suppose it would take a five foot seven inch man who weighed 140 pounds before he went under the water? How long? We don't have any way to demonstrate it today. If the baptistry were full, we could try it out. But it's not even five feet deep, so it wouldn't work too good. But Just like that, he's gone. But the Bible says, Peter said three things. Lord, save me. And actually, he only said two words. The word me, if you look at your Bible, if it's a good translation, it will have the word me in italics. Anytime you see a word in italics in the Bible, it means the word was supplied by the translators to make better sense for the reader. Lord, save. Boom. So what happened? Jesus, I think, grabbed him by the head of the hair. I don't know this for sure. <laughs> grabbed him by his hair because he's already down there and Jesus whoop, Jesus is fast. You think Spider-Man's fast. You haven't seen anything else. <laughs> Jesus grab, grabs him by the hair, pulls him up. Lord, save. Do you know, you have to be in that state where you're dying to know God you're hurting inside and you know that the throb inside of you is there you're beginning to see it it's because I can't fill it that place in my heart except through Christ and you just say to the Lord Lord save me and you know just like that he will if you mean it and you trust in him with all your heart and he will give you eternal life. This word, it's two words rather, I am where I am, there you may be also. We know that when Moses encountered God for the first time in the burning bush on the backside of the Midianite desert where he was tending sheep and God spoke to him out of this burning bush and he said to God, God, Who are you? And he said, I am. And then later he said, Lord, you're telling me you want me to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you're wanting me to tell him that he's supposed to let the over 2 million people who are enslaved, I'm to tell him you want him to let them go? You're telling me to do it? Yes. Well, who should I say sent me? He said, tell him that I am sent you. And scholars today are generally agreed that the word I am can be equally well translated this way, probably should be, I will be what I will be, I am. Have you noticed when you read the New Testament, in particular the book of John, how the Bible records events in Jesus' life in the sixth chapter, for instance, he says, I am the bread of life. In the 8th chapter, he says, I'm the light of the world. He repeats that in the next chapter when he heals a man who was born blind and had been blind all of his life, obviously, and he gave him sight. In the 10th chapter, he talks about how he is the good shepherd and the door. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. In the 11th chapter, he says, at the graveside of his good friend Lazarus, as he wept there over the death of him. He said, I am the resurrection in the life. I am, I am, I am, I am. What's he saying? I'm God and I will be what you need me to be in your life. You need sustenance. You need food for your soul. Something that nothing can fill up in this life. I'm the bread of life. And I am the door. I'm the only way into eternal life. I am and where I am. What you're going to discover is that you're going to have everything you need, light and life and meaning, all those things are ours in Christ. You think we have something to be grateful for? It's upsetting what happens to us. Oh, it's upsetting some of the things which happen to us. They're life-changing, life-challenging things. But when we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can cast our burden on Him And realize his shoulders are broad enough to carry all the weight of the world's sin and its effects. And he has done that on our behalf. Verse 4 says, And you know the way where I'm going. The word know here is the word which means experiential knowledge. These men had lived with Jesus off and on for three years. They hung out together. They did everything together. And they got to see him. I love the way that John introduces the epistle of First John. In that epistle, he talks about the person of Christ. Read it sometimes. The first four verses. He said, we touched him. We saw him. We heard him. This was a real human being. It was not some ghost or apparition. Jesus is a human being but he's also fully God we, they experienced him and we who know Christ experience Christ we know him and he is the one who is the way where we are going isn't he Thomas hadn't quite gotten it yet it took him a while like it does so many of us Thomas said to him Lord we do not know where you are going how do we know the way Jesus said to him, I am the way. May I pause here for just a moment? This reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what will He do? He'll make your path straight. Trust in the Lord and He will take you to His desired destination for you, which is ultimately to be with him in heaven. But meanwhile, be in this world and be a person who represents him in the world. And you are used in this world to bring glory to him. I am the way and the truth. Jesus says about the truth in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is the truth. He's the embodiment of the word of God. In John chapter 5 verse 39, Jesus speaks to his enemies really. He says, "You search the scripture because you believe. You diligently search the scripture because you believe that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures which testify about me." He's talking about the Old Testament by the way. There was no New Testament at this time. Jesus is the subject of what we call the Old Testament. And they learned about Him, but they had missed Him because they were looking in the wrong way. They had yet to really know Him as the truth. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this about the truth, If you abide in My Word, then you will be truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth. And what will the truth do? The truth will set you free. If you feel bound up today, you're not going to get freedom by reading the newest book on the market or by going to someone and have something given to you that's designed to help you cope better with life or resorting to some other kind of behavior, whether it's an activity or the ingestion of alcohol to an extent that it's an escape mechanism for you, that's not going to get you there. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. He is the way and the truth, and then finally, He is the life. There is no real life apart from Christ. No one comes to the Father but through me. In 1989, in a matter of four minutes, count them, a large portion of the nation of Armenia was flattened. 30,000 people died in a catastrophic earthquake. There was a man there who loved his son dearly and his son's name was Armand. And he told Armand every day, probably, these words. He said, no matter what happens, I will always be there for you. And he made good on his promise. This day really challenged him more than any other day because of what had happened. After the tremors settled down, he ran to the location of the elementary school that his son Armand attended. He went to the place of that single-story school building and he found the place that he knew the classroom was before the earthquake occurred and then he began to dig into the rubble he was there and by this time there were other parents who had come and they said to him through their grief and they were wailing and who wouldn't have been they said it's too late they're dead he's not in there they're all dead A policeman came soon thereafter and said, Sir, there's no way that anyone survived this event in this school. Give up. But he would not. Two hours into it, he was still digging. Four hours. Eight hours still digging. Sixteen hours. By this time, others had joined him in the process. Thirty-two hours. Thirty-six hours. Still no sign of life. In the 38th hour, he heard a boy's voice. And he cried out, Arman, Arman. And he said, Papa, I'm alive. And of course, you can imagine the electricity that went through those who were there. And they just increased more frantically the removal of stone. And when the children were rescued, this is what Armand said to his dad. He said, Papa, you always told me that nothing will keep me from knowing your presence and that you will always be there for me. I knew that you would come through for me, Papa. And I told my friends that you were coming and they would be benefited too because they would be saved because you're coming. I think about that in relationship to this teaching of Jesus. I will come back. He's coming back. And He will never leave us. He will never forsake us, we who know the Lord. Nor will He forsake those that we introduce to Christ as their Lord. He is. Such a wonderful... That's a, there's no word to describe Jesus, is there? But He extends His hands to us today and opens His arms and He calls us to believe in Him, to come to Him. And we embrace Him and He embraces us and He makes good on His promise that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, He will always be there for us. He says it this way in the book of John. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Are you in the hand of Jesus? Do you know that you have eternal life? Today could be the day of turning point for you. If you give your heart to Christ, come to Him and trust Him. Would you bow your head? Oh Lord, we come to you this morning and we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to being with you. Lord, I pray for those who are on the edge of coming to you today, they have debated. For a long time, maybe, maybe this is the first time. But we pray that you would beckon them and call them and they would come to you and lay down their life and trust you for their forgiveness of sin and for the promise of eternal life. We thank you, Lord. Hear their prayer. And receive them into your family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.